Welcome to episode 121 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Lisa Kemmerer. Lisa is an activist and academic who specializes in animal and environmental ethics. She was an associate professor of philosophy and religion at Montana State University Billings until she retired in 2020 to found and lead the educational vegan umbrella organization Tapestry. Lisa is the author or editor of 10 books, including Animals and World Religions. She's also written over 100 articles and book chapters. Lisa coined the term animal as a correct term for non-human animals. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 120 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend or 10 helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening as ever. Well, good morning, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining uh, Sentientist Conversations. It's great to have the chance to talk to you after it's having read pleasure. some of your work. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be fun. And the dogs are walked. Ours is uh, hiccuping quietly and asleep behind me. So I wish we'll mine see, were, but we'll see if, we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, so as we've discussed briefly before, this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the deepest and most important philosophical questions. What's real? epistemology, if you like, and what and who matters, ethics. And I'm framing it in the context of an obvious bias I have because I'm trying to popularize and develop a very simple worldview called sentientism um, or a recasting of that term, which I'm suggesting should answer the question what's real with a naturalistic approach grounded in using evidence and reason. And when it comes to who matters, the answer is obviously in the name that we should grant moral consideration, compassion, if you like, to all sentient beings. But I'm talking to people in these conversations who both agree with aspects of that philosophy and violently disagree too. So it'll be great to know your own personal philosophical story and where you've got to now on those two very big questions. But before we get into them, how would you best introduce yourself and your life and your work for people who don't know you? Yeah, I wouldn't. It's hard. It's hard to get me to talk much about my life in particular. I just have no interest in any of that. I want to get right into the ideas. So. I got to derail the conversations right at the start. I told you I was going to be impossible. I don't mean to be. I just don't find there to be anything very interesting about talking about my past. But if you ask, the other thing I can tell you is if you ask specific questions, you might get somewhere. But wide open like that, I'll just retreat to something else. Let's see where we go. Let's see where we go. So the first big question then, let's dive straight into it. What's real? So for many of my guests, that is a story about whether they grew up originally in a family or a social context that was maybe more religious or supernatural or mystical or spiritual in some sense, or whether it was more naturalistically grounded, maybe more atheistic, agnostic, scientifically minded, and how that side of their thinking about epistemology and what to believe has changed over time if it has. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to ask you that question about how do you think about these, those things as a young person and where have you got to now and how did you get there? And I guess part of the reason I'm interested in them is because for many people, they they link very powerfully. Some people do like to keep them completely separate in the classic sort of is or distinction for other people, including me, actually. I think quite often there are really powerful links between them. And that's one of the reasons I found your work so fascinating, particularly around religious ways of thinking and 
animal ethics because in a way you were sort of drawing that link between you know religious ethical systems or religious epistemological systems and what the ethical implications might be yes and i and i will say to you that for me one of the problems with most of the westerners people from my culture european american australian whatever that greco diaspora yeah we have this and or thing going on and I just, it isn't me. I can't even go there. I can't talk about this and that. I just, my mind sees a continuum, continuity, connection. So that's one reason when you say what's real, you're asking me to say what's real and what's not real. Well, you've already done that to me and I don't even know where to go with it. I don't think in those terms. Yeah. So. I think it's a very Eastern approach, but I will say that I seem to have more or less been born with it. And I gravitated immediately toward Eastern thinking when I was very young, probably because it suited how I looked at the world and how I understood things. I got pretty early on that people had different points of view and they believed it very strongly and, and that there was something to everybody's point of view. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and sometimes these conversations are about religion or atheism or sort of metaphysical stuff but i think it's just as interesting to talk about almost practical day-to-day beliefs and credences we have in absolutely absolutely because there's nowhere it matters more than what you, you could talk you could talk a blue streak and that's the thing with talking about what's real yeah you know if you're hungry and have nothing to eat whether you're a dog or a cat or a zebra or a person a human being it, it doesn't who cares what's real yeah. Who cares what I think about what's real? Yeah, that imperative is is there regardless. Is that yes? So I yeah. don't tend to use philosophy in an abstract way, and I have very little faith, if you will, yeah. in human reasoning. Yeah, I don't think we have brains that can reason. It's not my experience that humans are rational. Yeah. It's not my experience that when they talk about being rational, they actually are. So I'm very suspicious of the human sense that we're rational beings. I'm not suspicious of it. I know it's not true. We are yeah. not rational beings. And because I've seen that, you could take someone like Descartes that used reason to argue that an animals aren't sentient. Yeah. Okay, you yeah. just tell me, you know. So I'm not going there. I'm not going to say I'm rational. I'm not going to lean on rationality. I'm not going to. I have watched too much to think that I can talk about rationality like I have it and can trust it or like you have it and can trust it. Yeah. I don't trust it. Yeah. I appreciate that. And I think there's, there's almost a couple of extremes here. One is to abandon rationality completely. Yeah. And that's not our goal. No, I didn't think right. it was, right? Because, because, because that route li down that road lies, you know, arbitrariness or, you know, fabrication. Or... But again, notice what you're doing. You're polarizing. Yeah, yeah. And I can't think that way. What I know is we cannot trust our reason. It doesn't yeah. mean that reason's out doesn't yeah. mean we go to the opposite. What that means is that if we're going to talk about reason, we need to do it with humility. We need to do it with a sense that we really aren't rational animals. We wish we were. We love to think about it. It's, and to be honest, it's a very white male thing, right? It came right out of that Greco-Roman white male philosophy that reason was everything. And it's gotten us into a lot of trouble. Yeah. And, and I think that that humility, this is one of the ironies and one of the deep frustrations for me, because when I talk about a naturalistic way of understanding the world, that humility has to be absolutely central because a naturalistic understanding of reality recognizes, I mean, for me, for example, that I think we're a form of evolved ape that has developed cognitive capabilities. Isn't what you believe. 
that's what we understand from looking at it's not a belief that's what evidence indicates now true humans yeah. aren't very smart with evidence but anyway go ahead but that's okay, not so a belief I'd, maybe it's a credence you know it's something i i think is likely to be true i, I don't know how you describe it's, that we have read that evidence indicates that we are that's yeah. how i would put it yeah. what that means i don't know we yeah. have to talk about that next but yeah i understand anyway, it's not a belief. But, but i guess what where that where that leads me to is a humility about our own rationality and that our yeah. rationality isn't some sort of perfect it. it's you're not perfect race, you're assuming that apes aren't rational then and therefore we should be because we're wait a minute here no 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 no. i'm not assuming right apes aren't rational at all i'm i'm saying i'm suggesting that whatever capabilities we've got they are not perfect right yeah. we 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 are fallible we are we are flawed we there's no reason why we should think we will ever come to a right answer didn't you do that by tying us back to animals well but I think that's true of all the other animals too. I don't see. I don't think any of them were, are likely to have perfect credences or I beliefs or right reasoning to. Humanity. to. I could look at Descartes and tell you that I don't trust myself to yeah. have workable reason. I don't have to know that I'm an ape, which I am. Yeah. By the human classifications, I am an ape. By but the I, human classifications. And maybe that's maybe that's one of the weird things about humans is that I'm not sure. I don't know if it even makes sense to talk about it in these terms, but I'm not sure other animals overestimate their own capabilities. I mean, certainly not to the degree we do. I mean, we seem to have this sense of ourselves that- It's our, it's our sense of our brains. I mean, I've seen a cat jump and miss, thinking it could jump farther than it could. Yeah. The trouble is they don't destroy the universe with it. They don't kill everything else in sight with it. They fall on the floor and miss. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it is the extent of our power that makes our arrogance dangerous and, and damaging. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things that- By the way, by the way, Roe v. Wade was just overturned. Yeah, it's shocking. Did you hear that? I just yeah. heard that right before I got well, yeah. I want to go my walk. So human power, that's all about power. That's all about humans trying to use their brains to figure out what's right. That's reason in action. And you and I can look at that and say, that's irrational. Yeah. From their view, that's about life and protecting life. From my view, that's absolutely deadly to life. Don't tell me that humans are rational or that we should lead on our reason. Yeah. Now, I grant you, what does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with humility. It leaves us with a lot more humility than what we've got. Yeah, it does. And, and, anyway, and sorry, the, you were going somewhere. No, but in the, and descriptively, and this, is, this isn't a normative, but descriptively, just in reality, what determines which point of view wins is one of power, not being right. That's right. And money. And, money and yeah, power and, in their combined, yeah, right? Yeah. Whoever gets the airwaves. If you got Fox my, News. Yeah. And in my more optimistic moments, I'd like to hope that having a view that is more correlated with reality might give us an edge here or there. Yeah. I'm it's not guaranteed. About, it's not I'm guaranteed. I'm careful about that word reality, right? I, I Trump's yeah. reality. I don't want to know about that. But that's, that's reality for Trump. And I will say, I will say that. Yeah, it's a handmaid's tale reality. Yeah, and you're in, in, in you're in England, and I will say that Europe is more sensible. It's just more sensible. It's more informed. You're, it's less a scary place than the United States is. The United States, our ignorance is abounding, and our ability to get information out is limited. And our democracy is at risk because democracy requires education, and we are not an educated public. So there's one of my thoughts, clear and straight on the table. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have plenty of problems over here too. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily get into political analysis, but humans we can see many. Yeah, we can, exactly, exactly. Common problems. So I think 
I completely share that skepticism about humanity. I completely share that skepticism about reason and rationality. I'm not sure what the viable alternatives are to trying to use evidence and reason to try and form our credences. But we should have. But we should be. Yeah. How about if we instead looked at things around it, connected to it, with it? Yeah. It's, it's looking at a continuum instead of those opposites. If we said, okay, our reason is flawed, but it's something we got. We need to use it. We need to be skeptical. And I do the same thing with reality. I see that, you know, the question you asked before, and it's why I can't start with it. For one thing, it doesn't matter what I think is real, but it, my real is my real. And yeah. it's real. It's all, to me, that's it. But to you, it's nothing. You know, it's just what I think. And what does that matter? And even if I try to use my reason, I mean, it's just so useless. It's so human useless, right? So to me, what matters is something quite outside of our human minds and our busyness with our brains and our focus on our brains and our, our interest in our power and, and our superiority. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Well, should we come on to the what matters question? Because I think that's where you prefer to start well, anyway. I think we're on it. Yeah, I, don't think I, think, ever, I don't think you ever got me off it. <laughs> and, to, and to be honest, this happens so much in these conversations because I, I, I don't think they're I don't think it makes sense to even think of them as completely independent things, you know, whatever Hume or others might have thought. So quite often with my guests, even the ones that are willing to go along with my script, <laughs> the, um, you know, we, we're, we're talking about morality and ethics and, and what and who matters almost from the opening conversation. So, but, so I'd love to understand, you know, how you think about that, because one of the things that's amazing about your work is you've delved so richly into so many of the different cultures and worldviews and religions and ways of thinking around the world. And you might resist this, but I'm really interested in where that's left you personally when you come to think about yeah, well, what matters and who matters. And you can tell me your view doesn't matter, but I am, I'm interested anyway. It doesn't, and yet it totally does. In my life, it totally does. And I think the thing about cultures and 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 people is that that's where you have to work so humans aren't rational and they have these things called religions and cultures that are frankly very beautiful yeah they got their flaws they got their problems but the the point is if i'm going to be an activist if i'm going to from my from inside my little world and my little life if i'm going to do what is meaningful which is to try to bring change i have to work with humans where they're at so I need to understand their thinking and I need to understand their cultures and I need to do it in a way that is empathic. Yeah. And that's not hard for me. That's very easy for me because I'm a human, right? I'm also human living yeah. in my little world with my ways of seeing things. And I can see, oh, here's how they see it. And, and I can see the beauty in it and I can see the problems in it. And those are where I try to focus to talk about how we can change the world to make it a better place for all. Yeah. And when you're looking at these different ways of thinking, these different worldviews, and you're seeing the beauty and you're seeing the problems, what's the standard you're using to assess what's beauty and what's a problem? Ah, I don't. It's just a personal thing, and I see it that way. But I will tell you this, that what this idea of beauty, you're in aesthetics now, which is a really, really, as you know, slippery, yeah. slippery little fish. I like slippery little fish. But... It's with aesthetics, I will, I will say that people tend to agree. It's like ethics, you know, the idea that cruelty is not a good thing, it's fairly universal. Yeah. The idea that compassion is a good thing, it's fairly universal. 
So when I look at a culture, they have that culture because they collectively humanity has seen that as a good thing. Yeah. And when humanity sees something that's not a good thing, hopefully, not always, we just overturn Roe v. Wade. It's not yeah. culture, it's it's politics. It's a different thing, but it's still inside. It's still part of the picture. And that's, and that's partly why, and I agree, and that's, that's partly why I, I am fascinated by this link between the epistemology and the view of ethics, because there are some people who will say, the Roe versus Wade decision is itself a thing of ethical beauty because it's something that my deity, which I believe in supernaturally through a fideistic faith, has mm -hmm. ordained that life and therefore moral mm -hmm. significance mm -hmm. begins at the moment of conception. This so is why I work with religions. I love religions because they have a committed, strong belief. I can get a hold of it. Yeah. And, and when I talk to them, I can, I have never, never talked to a serious Christian and had them after a conversation say, it's okay what we're doing with animals. Even if they start there, they will not end there. Yeah. People inside a religion who take it seriously, if you dialogue with them, they will agree with you that we need to stop doing what we're doing to animals. Yeah. An atheist, someone who's not really committed, whole different picture. Yeah. Not and, my cup of tea. And, I, and that's why I, one of the things I find fascinating about your work, and I haven't you know, read, read all about any means, but what I've managed to dip into and understand is that sense of tuning into someone else's way of thinking, empathizing with it, seeing the value and the power in it, picking out the, those positive commonalities around mm -hmm. compassion mm -hmm. and working with them through a process of dialogue to try and get them to a more empathic and compassionate place. And that's deeply powerful. You're a good but, reader. And, Sorry, you're a good reader. <laughs> Thank you, and 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 it's it's powerful, and I aspire to that approach as well. Despite my more you know snarky moments on Twitter, but I think it's it's wonderful. But at the same time, I guess I'm coming back to this sense that there still is something that's driving you. Because if if I took what you said earlier on a different way, it could lead us to something that's much more relativistic, where Mm -hmm. Rather than having a dialogue with someone with a different worldview that you're trying to lead them towards something that you see is more compassionate, you would just say, well, their view is just as valid as mine, that they might see this cruelty or they might see this exclusionary version of compassion where compassion is constrained or conditional, where awful things are should be sanctioned for certain reasons, and you would just leave them to it because their view is just as valid as yours. Eh? This is where theory falls short. Yeah. It's never happened. That has never happened. Yeah. And, and I'm old and it's never happened. And I've been messing with religion since I was, my, I was talking about it with my sister just yesterday. I was Fowler's stages of religion. And I they said the sixth one you may or may not got, get to by the time you're dead. I was there in my teens. And by the time I was seven, I'd gone through the ones that most people stop at. So it's just me. I've been interested in that since I was a little kid, mm. a little kid. So my experience is, in theory, sure, in practice, not. doesn't happen. You don't yeah. go there. They're, these religions are rock solid in teaching the core ethic that generally humanity holds of compassion. Yeah. And people do not deny that. Yeah, in the right type of dialogue with them. Yeah. You are right. If you offend people and make them angry and put them off, you will have no dialogue. Yeah. So you're not going to get there. 
but, yeah. but they're not going to argue that their religion teaches cruelty. They're not going to argue that. They're in, they're in trouble from the get-go because they can't, no Christian can say that. And when they see yeah. something cruel, they have to say that's not good. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the, uh, I mean, there are lots of different rationales that lead people towards or away from religious ways of thinking. But one of the most powerful uh, for me in turning away from a established religion, or at least one that saw, you know, benevolent, omnipotent, omniscient creator was where we find instances, if not of cruelty, then certainly of egregious, awful suffering that just seemed to be incommensurate with the existence of a benevolent, powerful deity. So whether that's, you know, particularly wild animal suffering, um, where you can't really even blame human free will going astray, you know, it's independent of that, but there's catastrophic suffering in the wild, it's hard to see why that would happen. Or even if we go metaphysically in the concept of a hell, and again, there are different con conceptions of a hell. You know, some have a universalist view that no one will go there. Um, others will make excuses in different ways. But the idea conceptually of eternal torment, essentially for billions of innocent beings, purely for not following rules, doesn't seem commensurate with a, any form of benevolence that, that I can see too. So surely there are some areas when you're in, even in a dialogue with a religious person where you're using your sort of constructive dialogue superpowers, where they will still say, okay, but hell does exist. God created it. Can I God just is, tell you God is the perfect have. living being, therefore. I mean, how, how does that work? They never have. They never yeah. have. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, again, my experience is it's a powerful, powerful way to work with people. Yeah. And yeah. if you're an activist who wants to bring change. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, right. I'll also say that much of what you're saying just isn't true in, in other faiths. Yes. You're sticking yeah. in the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions. Absolutely. If you look at um, you know, Hindu, Jain, Buddhist, Zoroastrianism, mm -hmm. you know, they're very different um, mm -hmm. ways of thinking in different schools of thought. Um, and I think some of those have their own challenges as well. But personally... Of course they do, but they're less stuck on any one idea. Like they're yes. not going to be bent yeah. on a heaven hell. They will absolutely be bent on compassion. Yes. Yeah, I agree. On. I agree. I think there's, and there's a different character in the nature of the challenges there. And it seems to me, I don't know if you'd, you'd agree with this, that there seems to be something about having a single unified, all-powerful deity that seems to have a higher risk of warping ethics than a supernatural worldview that either is pantheistic or more broadly spiritual or transcendent in a more general... Do you think that's I characterization that's fair? Or? I characterize it a little different. The Western faiths tend to be very rigid about being literal about certain things. Others are not, right? But yeah. the things that they're very literal about. And I just find that the Eastern faiths are much more, they're, they think more like I do, that that's the way you see it. This is how I see it. Maybe that's true. Maybe this is true. I get that that's how you think, but this is how I think. And they're all good with that. Yeah. yeah. You know, when the, the wonderful, you know, when, the Christians showed up, they put Jesus up there with Krishna and Vishnu. They were quite, the Christians were very yeah. happy about it. They were quite happy they had Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What and there's so much way. more evolution and plasticity and flexibility in the, the histories that, of all these religions. Like that yeah. kind of, it's that rigid thinking that this is the way it is that can sometimes make it very hard for people in the Judeo-Christian Islamic faiths in some instances, like with theodicy. I mean, it yeah. can be very hard to work through evil and horrible things that happen in the world yeah with an all-powerful all-good god i'm going to guess at the answer but would you say you subscribe to a religious faith yourself 
I wouldn't say. Yeah. I wouldn't say because it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, and, and the thing is with my work, I, especially when I was teaching religions, students never, they would sometimes try to guess where I stood. <laughs> I could spend, you know, a whole semester in a classroom teaching religions and nobody knew where I stood. Yeah. That's important to me. Yeah. And I'm still working in religions and I don't want to be pigeonholed. Yeah. I need to be free to work between traditions without people saying, oh, that's because. Yeah. Well, I feel guilty for having asked you, but I guess that was going to be your answer. Everybody asked me. I felt okay. I had to. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so again, I know you, in a way it's odd because I'm interviewing you, but you don't want to talk about yourself, but I'm. I mean, I, the, I think the themes. All over the ideas, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's it. and that's it, right? And that's what I want to try and do is normal, in a way, normalize compassionate ideas. So uh, that's where exactly where I want to go. But I'm still fascinated in your story. But I guess would it be fair to say that as we're thinking about what matters and the grounding of your ethics, if there is such a thing, that compassion is something central to that. Yes, it and is. it was to my par- my father in particular, but my parents. It was it, it's been and my sister and yes, yeah, so I've been around it. She's older than I, and I would say that you know, like nature nurture. I am an animal. I, I, well, I think I'm an activist because my sister, my sister, but also my father. My father had such empathy, such empathy always, and was so sensitive. So, um, you know. Why am I who I am the same as everybody else? It's just the forces that brought me here. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, and I think that's, to me, it's almost definitionally what ethics and morality is about. And there are some who will disagree and say, you know, it's, ethics is just about rules for living. So you could have a you know, nihilistic ethics or an egoistic ethics. Or, but once we put, or, or an ethic that simply is about compliance to a deity, you know, that's another form of, ethics i guess but generally once we put those aside and even if we don't morality to me seems to be almost definitely about how we have whether we have a concern for others and i just i think that centrality of compassion is unavoidable and terrible things happen when people do avoid it um yes i would agree and i think that that's a practical thing i think that when you live in a community you have to you, you can't you can't tolerate cruelty and misuse and killing or you're not going to be living together you can't trust each other you can't function so i think that's very fundamental to animals and animals totally that live in communities you see it in horses and dogs and yeah. well, they have an ethic they know what they're they know what they have to do to get along as a community and we're no different yeah i'd agree and i, I think descriptively you can see the evolutionary roots of that you can see mm-hmm. why it was you know simplistically evolutionarily mm-hmm. adaptive for mm-hmm. animals to and to cooperate with each other um, so maybe that's a good way to think about when i try to figure out what's right how is this going to work for the larger community yeah i think that plays very strongly and th- i think i think it also is wise though because of our limited reason and our limited ability to think anything through properly to also maybe think maybe there's some things that are just um the rights theory there's yeah. just some rules that we also need to always hold and focus maybe not always keep them as we in our little brains think we should keep them but balance what looks like it's going to work for our community with some standards that we think may be important, maybe balancing those two. Yeah, I agree. And I think whether it's a utilitarian approach or a rights approach, in a, in a way, what we're doing is taking, you know, the evolutionary gift of the way our minds work as animals, which includes a sense of compassion for each other 
you know, mm-hmm. mother mm-hmm. for a child and a father mm-hmm. for a child and this ability and willingness to cooperate and seeing the value of that. And I guess we're, with our flawed and limited reasoning ability, sort of layering on top of that and trying to build in some more consistency and coherency and integrity to it. Because, you know, there are some that will, t- that will almost get stuck with the descriptive evolutionary ethics and say, you know, cooperation is evolutionary adaptive. But that's the only reason to show compassion is where we can reciprocate. And I'm like, well, okay, we've, I'm really glad we've gone beyond that to think much more universally about who warrants compassion. And we're not just in this, you know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, but otherwise, you know, I don't care. And I think, I think recognize that the community of life is the community. It's yeah. fundamental to using that idea of community. And I'd also say that virtue ethics, which I, when I was younger, I didn't really, I don't think I really understood it. I think it's in some ways many, much more complicated than either of the other two theor- moral theories. And I think that it, the, it has more flex in it. You know, the virtue of compassion, you know, there's, there's something on each side, like there's foolhardiness and there's boldness versus, you know, being cautious, cautious versus cowardly. So I like that you can understand that these things work on a continuum, that bravery can be stupid or it can be good. Yeah. yeah. Right. So maybe mixing in some of that idea of the virtue ethics that looks at terms as having a continuum to go with this idea of what works for community. So if we say compassion works for community, yes, it works for community, but are we gonna spend, and this is where uh, consistency can be problematic is when we, we get on the idea, well then, you know, what about the gnat? And what about the tick that bites my dog? And what about the worm and the, you know, this is where you have to realize that there's some way of, of looking at compassion. You have to also be somewhat practical. Okay, does practical mean you kill your neighbor because your neighbor's drinking more water than you want them to have? I don't know. And this is where it gets complicated. But I can, I, I'm able and I'm and willing and I'm only willing to talk about ethics in that way that we don't have the answers and we don't know the answers. And the idea of consistency is extremely important. And I love to take things to their logical extreme. But I also recognize that 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 is a, in some sense, it's a mind game. And that's, yeah. that, and I don't favor mind games because I have dogs and I don't let ticks live on them. So yeah. realistically, I'm not willing to leave worms in their belly. Um, so, yeah. uh, so that's just, again, that's that various sides that I wander around on. And one thing I've come to in this series of conversations is, the sense that I'm quite open-minded about different ethical systems that you might apply, whether it's utilitarian or virtue ethics or a feminist care ethic or relational, or yeah, I'm quite open-minded about that. It's quite pragmatic and pluralistic and willing to recognize that different approaches might work better in different contexts. And maybe mm-hmm. that's just a sort of intellectual weakness and I'm falling back on ways of justifying my own intuitions, but you know, that's what it is, right? So let's, let's work that through. But for me, the, the most foundational thing is this idea of moral scope? Uh, because I think all of those systems will have some sense of concern for others. You know, utilitarian is concerned about the welfare of others. It's a community. In, it's it's a it's community a com- ethic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, so the and and a virtue ethicist. You know, yes, they're focused on the virtues of a moral agent, but ultimately the difference between a virtue and a vice. You can somewhat assess it by what impact does that have on the wider world and the community. You know, that's how we know a virtue is a virtue and a vice is a vice. It's, it's not a purely internal thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so this question about the community is really important, and I think almost more important than which particular ethical approach we then apply. You know, it's almost I who, think get, so. who counts I at all, who's in, 
Who do we put Little around? Series or that's good. I want to put that in the human category where it's humans doing yeah. the best they can with our brains, but our brains are very limited. Yeah. And, and most of, again, I'm an amateur in this field, but it strikes me that most of the work that's done both academically and in the public sphere about moral philosophy is about those things. It is about virtue ethics or rights or utility or but and yes. but but nearly all of that work nearly all of it is grounded on a founding assumption that we're talking about the human community yes. and in some cases not even all the human community you know we know the, his, no, the painful correct. awful history of you know thinking that ethics only applies to a subset of humanity as well yes, so, yes. Ha- and you we'll talked about the fact that you growing up with your family compassion was absolutely central how far did that compassion go as you came to think about i never saw my father animal kingdom on the Yes, kingdom. everything. My father, right from the stop. My father was a teacher. I, I went to the high school where he taught. I remember watching him pick up worms on the campus and move them. Right? So that was the father who raised me. He wow. thought that that was a living being who would rather not be on the pavement, and he would move the worm. So he was very broadly inclusive. And you know, that's no mystery I am who I am. I didn't get there by my own powers. It's not because I'm something amazing. It's because I had a father that that helped me to see the world differently. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe ultimately it's luck all the way down, right? It's, it's uh, yes, genetics privilege. and how Let's we're drawn up and environment privilege. and privilege and all those things, <laughs> privilege or lack of privilege, yeah, that's yes. just, yeah. And of course, humans helped me along too. I, you know, I always found humans to be mean. And so I, you know, I, I understood humans from a very young age to be dishonest. I remember as a kid being shocked by their dishonesty and by their cruelty. And I don't know if that was because I came from a family where people, my, my family was honest and we were not cruel. So I found humans somewhat startlingly ugly. Because of that contrast you saw, yeah. Yes, it was not what I expected. Yeah. And one of the central challenges in this topic of extending our compassion beyond the human, of course, is to do with food and animal products. So I think it's quite common that uh, young people will grow up with an intuitive compassion that goes way beyond the human yes. species. And it's not just Very with natural. companion animals or wild animals that they befriend yes. or develop relationships with. You, yes. would put, you would put them in a room with you know, a farmed animal and they would still yes. feel that very same compassion. Yes. But yes. the default, of course, is that their parents and society at large very yes. rapidly teach them in forceful ways yes. that it's not only normal, but it's actually desirable to... Yes. at an industrial scale um, and kill those beings for ru- fairly transient to turn off that switch turn off that switch yeah. keep so, it for this but not that yeah it's and it's bizarre those social norms and and the human psychology that comes in behind it the cognitive dissonance and the denial and the avoidance and the crazier and you know all the things that i the tools i used to use for a long long while come into play um but how did that dimension play out for you was your family um, you know, compassionate to the worm on the sidewalk, but s- still, like everybody else, did consumed animals or? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I grew up on meat. Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, as I say, I think that the task of young people is to take whatever their parents give them one step further. Yeah. And sometimes it can turn you around. So you end up going the other way. If you take what your parents taught you one step further, it's going to become so absurd that you've got to figure out some other way to go. Yeah. But in, in our case, again, it was my sister. She connected with organizations at a very young age uh, and started reading literature from PETA, for example. Yeah. And 
I'm not a good reader, but she would talk to me about it and she'd sometimes show me pictures and, uh, you know, so that's how we made the, connected the dots was through my sister being in touch and I made the first leap and although she probably started it, but she was kind of an on and off starter, whereas I'm like, done. I mean, so, yeah. <laughs> done, <laughs> done, don't like it, done. So, uh, although, although starting when I did way back in the 80s, it isn't like now you yeah. went vegan and you, you know, I'd still, it doesn't mean I'd never eat a cookie that I found on a counter. So it wasn't the same kind of vegan, but the, there was no reasonable milk, right? Yeah. There was no, there what was, was it? Was it powdered? Was it powdered soy milk was the only alternative or even that was tough to come by, wasn't it? You I just mean, did without, you did without. Yeah. There I mean, nothing kudos, kudos for managing it in the eighties. I think I, I would, didn't have any money. I, it wasn't like I could yeah. buy anything expensive. I just did without. Yeah. So it was a very different world to go vegan in. And I, of course, did first go vegetarian because it took longer to read about and learn about the dairy aspect. Yeah. That wasn't being hit up yet in those days. That was yeah. later. And then, you know, sometime later, I don't yeah. know, within a decade, I learned yeah. that and did that as well. Same with me, although unfortunately it was two decades in between those two stages. But how did, and how did you find Here, that? Sorry, go ahead. But, but this is the thing, right? My family was very compassionate. And then I know I, and the, my poor mom, who had always cooked for us faithfully, made meals, beautiful breakfasts and lunches and dinners. We ate as a family. This was old style before smartphones and everything else that kept you from being together. And then, you know, I stopped eating what she had cooked. And I know that was hard for her. And I was young. It isn't like I had any tact. So I'm sure that was very hard for her. And I have empathy with any anybody who's dealing with somebody who's gone vegan, especially a young person, because they don't have tact and you can't expect them to. Yeah. But my my father in particular got it and was willing to go vegetarian and then vegan. Although, because mom never did. And mom is less of a, my dad was a philosopher right at his core and very, very, I want to say spiritual because he was such a good person and so rooted in ethics and how he lived. And it's really the only word that works. But mom was less so, and she, to this day, won't commit to anything in particular. She still kind of eats whatever she wants, but she is largely, largely vegetarian. Yeah. Largely yeah. vegetarian. Yeah. So, and you know, she's 92 now, still running around being who she is. And, yeah. um, you know, she was born in 1930, I, you know? I'm guessing if I'd born in, been born in 1930 and had kids like my sister and I, I would have gone vegan, but she's her own person. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm glad she's gone vegetarian. And, yeah. you know, my dad, my dad died a few years ago and he said uh, about a decade ago, and he said it more than once, you kids, you kids saved my life by changing my life. He knew all his peers were dead. He lived to be 86. Wow. And for, for him and his generation, you know, that was everybody he knew was dead. Yeah. He knew it was because he quit eating all the stuff that they were eating. <laughs> so there was that side of it, too. And he yeah. knew it. Yeah. So there was real incongruity, you know, there was that real inconsistency in our house, but you don't feel it when you're in it, you know? No. So, and that's something to know, to remember when you're dealing with people who are just, you're like, huh? Yeah. Well, normal normal is normal. It's just, yeah. Normal is normal. And we're all that way. Yeah. I, I know I am that way and I can't see it. Yeah. But every now and then somebody will point it out to me. But because I know it's there, it's a little easier to see. But so yeah. I think that's the beauty of this isn't seeing it out there in the world and being irritated, but knowing you're no different. We all grow up in our little bubbles and we can't see outside of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That mix with others. Yeah. And was it, so you touched on the, the challenge there with 
um, your mum making that decision within the household. What was it like more broadly socially? Did, was that, again, in the 80s, was, how, did, how did other people look at you, friends, family, schoolmates? Was that difficult too, or were you just like, I'm doing this, I don't care what people think? I was very much independent, so I never felt the, yeah. I wasn't around. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I was very much on my own path from an early age, so I didn't have to deal with what everybody else thought or what anybody else thought, frankly. Yeah. I started traveling at a young age. I went off to learn about religions when I was still in my teens. I worked for all summer as a forest firefighter and took my $3,000. I bought my ticket and I flew overseas and I backpacked around. So I, you know, actually what it was fit in better over there in in those parts of the world than it would have here yeah so i I, would, I didn't have to worry really about what my culture thought about it because i wasn't here much and not much a part of my own culture and my students always laughed at me because they could ask me about the most famous people that ever existed and i'm like i have no idea who they are <laughs> not plugged in don't want to be thank you very much when michael jackson died it was the first i learned about him it was the students plastered all around who is this person <laughs> you were following your own path yeah. My own path and I wasn't plugged in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And um, it, it sounds like you, that interest in religions was something you had very early on. Did that come from your parents' religion? And I'm not trying to, you know. It's okay. It's okay. Absolutely from the way I grew up. Again, yeah. I don't think any of us miraculously materialize. We yeah. are products of the things around us that shape us. Nature, nurture, don't care about that question. That's the, the opposition. What I know is I can certainly see things in me. And I can certainly see things outside me that shaped what I am, that, that sparked that fascination with religion yeah, at yeah. a very early age. And, and like that sense of, what, you know, whether it's supernatural or not, that sense of spirituality you got from your dad and that, yeah. Yes. It was no yes. doubt part of, the, part of the trigger. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so another question that you might want to, um, well, you answer it how you like, right. But there's an obvious challenge to this sentientist stance that says every sentient being, you know, any being that has the capacity to feel suffering, flourishing, any sense whatsoever, should matter. We should care about their perspective and we should grant them moral consideration and we should at least need, not needlessly cause them harm. Right? So that's, a, I guess, how I describe that sentientist stance of moral scope. So there's an obvious challenge where people will push back on that and say, no, only humans should matter. Sometimes even only some groups of humans should matter. Um, and that response might come from a completely naturalistic worldview where people have come to some sort of scientific view that humans are at the apex and therefore, because of our amazing capabilities, you know, we have the right to do what we like to others. You know, it's almost a sort of might means right. Yeah, it's come to I, the point. I, I agree. They're just a, nice. They like it. They've been told it. They have questioned it. They're good. That's it's that simple. Yeah. And it puts them at the apex. So, you know, why, why resist, right? Yeah. Why yeah. resist? I've, yeah. I've, won the, I've won the global competition for importance. I'm a human, so we're, we're done. And, and of course, there's, there's, there's strong echoes of that in some religious worldviews as well. And you've written extensively on that, whether it's the, these ideas of dominion and so on as well. And we'll come back to those in a bit. So that's one challenge is people have said, look, you've gone too far. Let's focus on humans. But there's another challenge which says, hold on, sentientism doesn't go far enough. What about entities that, can't probably can't suffer you know so you know there are some people who will suggest that plants have the capacity to suffer but scientific consensus at the moment thinks it's pretty unlikely so let's assume plants can't ex themselves experience suffering pain pleasure flourishing what do we think about plants or biocentrism or more broadly even than that what do we think about rocks and rivers and trees and the earth is and gaia ecosystem How, what do you think about compassion going even beyond 
no, beings that have the capacity have to experience. Have regard for everything. Why wouldn't we? Who do we think we are? But I will say this, that when you start with the sentientism and you say we ought to have this compassion for all, my immediate response to that is great, you do it. Over here, I've got a, a veal calf and I'm gonna work with that. I'm not gonna worry right now about the fly. I'm not gonna kill the fly yeah. and I don't think you should kill the fly. I am gonna fix, I'm gonna try to fix, I'm gonna, I can't fix it. I am gonna work on this situation. Yeah. So, and this is where I'm not much of a philosopher. I, I can't say that. I think philosophy goes wrong when it runs off and it, it, it's the ivory tower stuff, Yeah. right? You got a cow here, you got trillions of animals yeah. that are in situations so unthinkable that I'm not too willing to worry about this idea just now. I th yeah. What I'll say is, great. I think that's wonderful that you feel that way. I feel similarly, and I'm going to get back to my work. Yeah. That's that where I would say that. No, now, going I beyond that, when you talk about plants, I'm going to say, absolutely. Again, I'm right there with you, but yeah. I'm not going to argue about it. I'm yeah. not going to argue. Why would I argue between the gnat and the grass? when there is a veal calf right here yeah. that I know is dying now and now and now. And I'll go even further. I, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be narrow-minded. There is someone dying of, of hunger who is a human being, Yeah. right? So if you don't care about the veal calf, you can, perhaps you can at least focus on the human being that has nothing to eat. Yeah, millions and, every year. Yeah, we don't need to argue about, but you need to recognize that that human being is hungry and that veal calf is going to be slaughtered yeah. because you have failed in, because we have collectively failed in our compassion. So behind it lies this idea of expanded compassion. But I'm not going to argue about how far it should go. I'm going to say it needs to go further. It needs to include these, these who are starving, this one who you are slaughtering. It needs to include those. And no one, not too many people will argue with you on that. Yeah. So can we get on board there is my question. Can we educate people well enough and get enough Get a quorum so that those who are who don't care are on the outside and the weight of humanity's tendency to go with one another as a community pulls them along yeah yeah we don't even need to persuade everybody we just need to persuade enough people and change yeah. the central gravity and, and knock and, that market down and i completely empathize with your maybe frustration with the sort of the field of philosophy in general because it, it does feel like a lot of the work is somewhat abstruse, it's somewhat technical, and I'm I, don't not, do it. I just don't see how it bears on the practical problems we're facing today. And they would they would say, oh, but it's still important work, it's the foundations and it's the underpinning, but I, I struggle to engage with it. The reason I guess I do focus on the moral scope idea is is for practical considerations. Yes, because, that's right. Because yeah. if someone is anthropocentric, they see no problem with animal farming and fishing and exploitation, for example, yes. because those beings just do not count in their ethical system. So, that, so that's yes. why, you know, I but want to- don't waste your time on them. You're not gonna go in, unless they're religious, yeah. you're not gonna get anywhere with them. Because if that is truly what they believe, how are you gonna touch them? Well, it's interesting you say that, and I'd love to come back to that because I think I think we can work even on the people who aren't religious too. But we'll come back to that in a bit because the the other thing yeah. I wanted to say, part of the reason I'm interested in this biocentric and ecocentric way of thinking, is because most of the people at the moment who are suggesting we go that direction, and I'd argue this is where the modern environmental movement is, 
is putting it forward as this is a super, sort of super generous extension of our moral scope to include the entire planet and even go yeah, beyond. I don't see it that way. But okay. actually, it's a veneer on anthropocentrism because the reason most of those That's people only concern care about plants and ecosystems is because For of themselves. the threat to humans yes. and they'll yes. conveniently exclude all no, of the sentient beings yes. from that's right. so so that's that's the only reason i really sort of i do go on about this sort of moral scope idea it's just to sort of challenge those inconsistent but it is ultimately for practical reasons i'm trying to draw it back to un, you know undermining these justifications for just the, the object horror that we I did a lot of walking, and I remember when I would walk along, I, I, when I, I was thinking, as I often do when I walk, and I was pulling off tips of grass, and when I became aware of it, I felt bad. I recognized it was an entity. It didn't have to be sentient. I had torn the top off that piece of grass for no apparent reason because I wasn't thinking. It yeah. bothered me to do that. And, Just absent, you know, absent-mindedly, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't do it. And, and so I re- it isn't the sentience of the grass, and the grass may flourish better if I tear off its top. That's not the point. It's a separate entity. And whether or not anyone thinks something might be good for me to force it on me, to do that to me, you know, if I try to extrapolate, which is all I can do as a little living being who has a limited brain, I think that's how I, let's think that's where I was as a kid. Yeah, yeah. I would suspect that, although your consideration goes beyond sentient beings in that way, you know, and and I think I'd share that intuition, why, why needlessly damage anything whether it's sentient yeah. or Leave not it alone. too many of us leave it alone i think i'd i think i'd am i right in saying that that sentience still does provide an additional lift or priority or some other level of consideration um and that you'd see you know a radical difference between cutting a blade of grass and cutting a pig for example does this mean anything to you i don't see them as opposites yeah. Don't see those opposites. Yeah. And when people argue that plants are sentient, I'm like, oh, I don't think so. Not by the very <laughs> basic. You just define the terms, you'll find they are not sentient. Yeah. But animals need plants. And, you know, the earth is, a, it's all together. It's all part of the same thing. And the deer can't survive if we've, you know, the habitat's gone because there's too many of us and we're yeah. too thoughtless and we're too greedy. We're, you know, we're swarming out with all of our offspring across the earth so that, you know, Everything is harmed by the fact that we're taking up space. You know, it's, we're not eating them, we're not wearing them, we're not experimenting on them. We're just taking up the whole earth so they don't have anywhere to be. We're using up all the resources, which are not resources, it's the planet. The crazy thing is us humans aren't taking up that much space. It's mostly our farmed animals and the crops to feed them that are taking up all the space. That's, so anyway, I so- count that right in there. That's the, us and our enterprises, our buildings, our roads, that's us. Yeah, it's such an obvious win-win crying out. Um, so. Let's come on to this final question, which we're already touching on all the way through, because in, in a sense, this is what you're about, which is how do we make a better future, right? Yeah, Practical, pragmatic terms. Let's drop all the theory and leave that to one side. And yeah. how do we make positive change in the world? And maybe a good way to start this is, you've already said something quite interesting, or very interesting, many interesting things, but this one in particular caught my brain, which was, you don't have a chance persuading people unless they're religious. So I've clearly you you have this dazzling insight into many different religious ways of thinking, and your hypothesis is that the roots of compassion, not just for humans but for any mouths too, are in every single one of those religions, and provides a rich grounding for us to engage in dialogue that will move things in a positive way. Yeah. Um, So so there's there's two things that would be fascinating to do, and one I'm not going to get you to summarize your book, but. It would be really interesting just to get a sense in the time we have of how does that work in different ways of religious thinking, partly because I'm then interested in 
the implication of your point, which is if someone has a naturalistic way of thinking that doesn't have religion in it, your hypothesis is that there's nothing we can do to persuade them about the ethics of non-human animals. No, no, I never made such a strong statement. Okay. But I'll say you won't have, you, you're, you are just, you have a book of the truths of people when you have someone who's religious. And you can go in there and say, well, here's what you believe. Look at this. Did you know about that? And look at that. And most of the time they didn't know and they haven't looked or they did know and they feel a little guilty when you point it out again. But when you have somebody who doesn't align with a religion, they can say, I don't care. Yeah. They may or may not. So you may have some luck. They may care, but they yeah. can say, I don't care. And no it, religious person will say, I don't care. Well, let's do it the other way around, because I think I, I, I've got a bit more hope for the non-religious. I'm non-religious myself. And most of my guests are non-religious. And one of the conversations we obviously have is we say, you know, what's real? And they say, well, I use evidence and reason. And this is where I think, you know, they have a naturalistic scientific way of thinking. And then you go, OK, well, where are your ethics? Why aren't you out there killing and hurting people just for fun? Right. And every single one of them rejects a nihilistic way of thinking. And mm -hmm. actually, every one of them rejects a sort of arbitrary relativistic way of thinking as well. Yes, they, they answer in the same way that you and I do generally, yes. which they say is, is compassion. And they'll just yeah. describe that in a, you know, an evolved capacity. But they'll say we're using our flawed human thinking to try and formalize it and clarify it and make it more consistent and improve it. So in a way, they, they answer it in the same sense. And I guess there's one movement, you know, it's a complex, diverse, messy world the non-religious you know there are atheists and skeptics and free thinkers and mm -hmm. you know, all sorts but one interesting group is the humanists mm -hmm. because the humanists in its modern incarnation have um said you know we'll have a naturalistic worldview we'll try and with hopefully with humility although sometimes they could use a bit more of that use evidence and reason to work out what's real or what might not be real uh, but they will have, also have a universal compassion for all humans so it's not just a naturalistic worldview they've laid in some an ethical imperative of some sort. You can absolutely have a lot of fun talking to them. You could say, well, why do you have, right? You can definitely take that and run with it. But my uh, experience is you're going to have better luck with religious people. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm presenting at the American Humanist Association um, tomorrow night. So we'll see how we get on. I've... Wonderful. You know, I will be, oh, I'm so interested. Do send me a note and let me know. But, but remember, when you talk about the group that you are working with who has a, what percent Right? What percent of the population is like the people that you're dealing with here in your group? Go ahead, give me a number. Painful though it is. Globally, globally, my best guess is between half and one percent. Yeah. So that is why, as an activist, I figured out most people have some religion. Most religions feel very strongly about cruelty. Most people are rather interested in their ultimate salvation. You can add that up pretty well yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, it is, and I don't, it's a mistake that, our, that this movement, the animal rights movement, no, not rights, we are not rights, we don't work toward rights. The animal activists make is that they reject religions. And uh, it's, so I won't, I work in that field and find it very, very wonderful and very effective. Yeah, we need to, we need to engage regardless of our own views. And I think uh, I'll let you know how, how I get on with humanists. I've had lots of engagement with them already. And on the one hand, there is a frustration because for some humanists, the clue is in the name. It feels still very anthropocentric. Um, and often it can have associations, again, with that sort of Western-oriented, post-Enlightenment, European Enlightenment way of thinking, when actually its roots are much deeper, much more global. But there is still an anthropocentrism there and a resistance, because there's a sense with some of them, I think, that they feel like they've freed themselves from a religious way of thinking. 
Um, they've layered on a universal compassion and human ethics. They look at what they've done, you know, influencing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and they think they've arrived. And and my point to them is, well, the the whole point of turning away from a, a dogmatic religious way of thinking is that your humility and your doubt and your open mindedness should lead you to continually question the way you think and and what you imagine. And and let's talk about if we have universal compassion for all other humans because of their capacity to suffer, why should we stop there? And and an increasing number of humanists are, you know, the light's starting to go on and they're going, yeah, that's, you know, that's but sort of... Will, but will they change? Do they have motivated incentive to change? It, I think some of them do. So I, I was rather cheekily, I was at a lecture even two years ago and there was 1,100 uh, humanists in the audience attending a lecture by one of my previous guests, actually, Dr. Diana Fleischmann. And I rather cheekily asked a question of the whole audience because Diana's presentation was essentially about this topic, was about well done humanists, what ne what's next? It's all sentient beings. That was part of the talk. And I asked the audience, you know, based on what we're talking about, what percentage of you or how many of you are ethical vegans or vegetarians um, because you have this ethical... And, and a, it was about 35, 40% of people put their hands up. Now, it's self-reported okay, and they're in a, a particular yes. context. But yes. again, that's... And, and you mixed vegetarian with vegan. I did. So I, I softened that just to make the numbers a bit higher. But even... Even so, that's an order of magnitude higher than the base population. So I, I, I hold I would out. They are I, hold out, I hold that hope for. I hold that hope for the humanists. In as much as you're working with thinkers, there is certainly some hope there. But they have to be not just interested in, interested in thinking, but also interested in doing. And that is where you will find out if that's the case. I have a question about the humanists. What's the ratio, male female? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I think, I think the it varies again globally. But I think it probably does edge male. It probably does edge white, and it probably does edge edge quite old. Yes, I wouldn't have known the old, but I would have known the white. And the yeah, male. I mean, it's what not. The, what about your group? Same dynamic, I'm assuming. No. So right. one of the, one of the interesting because things. It's vegan, love it. That's partly it. Yeah. So 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 it's um it's been fascinating because it's still a very I mean. It's just a worldview. There isn't a group. There's no membership. There's no governance. There's no organization. It's just a way of thinking. So, you know, we all, we, there's online forums and people talk about it, but that's it. There's no structural formality to it. Uh, there's nothing to leave or, or join. Uh, and that's quite deliberate. I just want it to be a worldview. Yeah. Evidence, yes. reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. But out of the people that have, you know, joined those groups and participate, um, and it's probably a few thousand people, um, they come from over 100 countries. The demographic wave basically matches the human population. There are people in their teens all the way through to people in their 90s. Um, gender diversity seems remarkably well balanced. Is it, is it largely white? It's, it's a mix. It is partly because of just the center of gravity of where and some of the wish. social media platforms live. Mm -hmm. um, but even within those, it's... It, how representative is i don't know i mean i haven't asked people to even self-report so yeah, i'm not entirely right. sure but my, yeah, my soft yeah. sense is it seems to have a a much more diverse broad-based appeal yeah. also across the political spectrum interestingly yeah. than something like humanism or i'm framing the sentientism idea as something that is explicitly naturalistic so it's it's taking a sentiocentric moral scope if you like which says all sentient beings matter and it is twinning that with at least a methodological naturalism that says rather than fideistic faith 
for example, we will use evidence and reason with humility to try and form credences about the world. So in that sense, it does imply a non-religious stance. But personally, and I think everyone else in the group, would absolutely and does actually actively engage in an activist sense with everybody and anybody. So there's no sense of excluding the religious. That would be crazy. Why would we do that? You know, anyone who has a centre or has the potential to move towards a centiocentric compassion, we should engage with them on their terms. I'll tell you why they would. And I'll tell you why many people have to. You can't be ignorant. You have to be educated about religions to talk to people inside religion. Yes. Yeah. And that's half of what I do. Half of it is so that animal activists can learn about what it is they can say or need to say or how to respond. They can understand the core tenets that they need to work around. I'm working as much with people who are not of faith as those who are of faith. Yeah. The problem I mean, is I can't, it's harder to get them engaged because, again, most of them are just feeling like, oh, really, you know, Christianity is useless. They're, you know, meat eating and they're, you know, God said eat the animals and they do. And, it's just not helpful and it's not true yeah getting them to be educated enough to engage with a christian or a muslim or somebody from the jewish tradition you know like it's one of my challenges yeah it's like this that try to get people to see this is a population we can work with yeah but you have to be educated and you have to understand the context and and where that person's coming from at least roughly yes that applies to everybody not just the religious but particularly with people who take a religious worldview seriously, if you can't understand where they're coming from in that context, very hard to have a productive discussion. So this is a crazy thing to ask. What would be the bluffer's guide if in a few minutes, if someone said to you, you know, my, 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 my simplistic sense from outside of religious worldviews is that they're anthropocentric, you know, it's all about humans have souls, gods are, you know, we're made in the image of God, so we're special. Um, where there is compassion for non-human animals, it's not really compassion for the animals. It's because there's a risk of them being reincarnated or we have to have some sort of patronizing stewardship over them. You know, so I just don't see how any religion, Eastern, Western or otherwise, is productive ground for any amount ethics. What, what would be the bluffer's guide if you were stuck in a lift with someone or you just had a few minutes to say, look, here are the themes. This is why you're misunderstanding. Every religion teaches compassion. Humility, that the center is not humanity. It is either a god or uh, the center is your ultimate, your ultimate journey. Let's put it that way. It's your yeah. ultimate journey that matters. So if you add compassion, humility, it's your ultimate journey that matters. None of that points to what's going on. All of that points to vegan. All of those are absolutely central to religions. And that's just three of them. Then there's things like service. So all religions teach that we should be, we're here to serve. So that speaks to activism. That speaks to helping animals. So there's four of them just off the top of my head that are just, you can't find a religion that doesn't teach those. And all of them have teachings about what you should eat too. And um, all, I think all religions, all religions, um, have at their, at their core idea that it is best not to be eating animals. They may not have the dairy connection because way back when these ideas were formed, it wasn't cruel to share milk with a mother cow with her calf. Yeah. Now it is. So um, there's that too. There's also direct teachings like Genesis, which said, I give you the plants and the seeds to eat. The, according to the Jewish Christian, and to a lesser degree, but also Islamic traditions, 
that Bible teaches that we were given a vegan diet by God. And only later, after much violence and much unhappiness, does God say, you know, like, you know, you guys are hopeless. You're violent. You're not what I expected. You know, okay, I give you. It's, it, I give you everything now as I gave you the plants and the seeds. But the fear of you and the dread of you will be, you know, the, the earth is ruined by humanity. So if you really look at the text, how do you get from that? Well, God said we could, you know, and I had no trouble telling this to my students when we looked at it. And I would ask them, I would have them read that chapter in Genesis, that that phrase, those lines, it would take five times. I'd say, what does, what are we given to eat? Everything. What are we given to eat? Animals and plants. What are we given to eat? Bread. They'd start getting look confused. Finally, they'd like, then they'd read it. Seeds and greens. Okay, that's where it's just hard to break through that Sunday school idea that they were fed that's wrong. Yes, later we are given that, but the whole context matters. And then I can ask them, I can say to them, do you think it's best that we eat what we were told we could eat because we were not living up to what, you know, the deity hoped we would be? Or should we try to eat the beauty of that original Eden? The world that yeah. God created, which was peaceful and compassionate and beautiful. Make heaven on earth, not just wait for it. Yeah. And of course, on earth as it is in heaven, right? Right out of the Christian yeah. text. And I, I tell you, when I talk like this to a Christian, what do you think they're going to say? Right? They're not going to say, well, I think, you know, I'm going to eat just like a person that didn't quite live up to God's expectation, right? Not if they're serious. But it's a new idea for them. But I have absolutely working with people who stand strongly within their religious tradition. For me, it's a godsend, I will say. Yes. It truly is. It's a blessing. It's something that it's a way to work with people with some of the most beautiful ideas in the world and encourage them inside their tradition to say these teachings are so beautiful. Did you ever notice them? Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever really read them? Yeah. Wouldn't you like to maybe practice them? Because I'm right there with you. Let's do it. Yeah. And, and I love it because you're, you're helping them deepen and in, enrich their own worldview and their way of thinking and what value is to them and what's important in a way that's taking them towards a more a broader, a more generous compassion. Yeah. yeah. Inside their own tradition. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, when we look at the more eastern religions is it true to say that there's even more direct easy route through ideas like ahimsa and how would is, is there a sort of similar package of themes or dialogues that you tend yes to and use no. remember that in the in the eastern tradition the ideal is not to harm yeah the christian jewish christian islamic traditions it's to love yeah okay yeah. which is stronger it's a higher bar right yeah it's oh, a higher boy, yeah, more demanding ever. oh boy is it ever yes uh, in the Eastern tradition, another thing that can make it more difficult is that they are so open. They can say, oh, okay, that's how you see it. Whereas the Christians are going to say, no, that is what's written there, right? That's where that, again, understanding the traditions and working inside the traditions. So luckily, I live, lucky or not, I live largely around people of Western faiths, especially when I was working in Montana. Pretty much everybody's a Christian, a fairly conservative Christian. So it was very easy to work with that population. Um, and going forward, I can't ever imagine myself having the 
the joy of living with any other religious tradition this but i have the joy of living with this religious tradition and and it's good too so i don't really know what it would be like to work with those in the eastern traditions but when i have dialogued with them well i have to say i haven't had a lot of chances in recent history when i did quite some time ago i hadn't yet honed my skill if you will you know it takes years to learn uh so I, what I remember is having less success, but I probably had less tact. I probably had less knowledge and less sensitivity than I would have now. And I don't know how that would go, but it would be very interesting to try. But I do know in Eastern traditions, there's very much a live and let live attitude and, and much more of that's where you are in your journey, which cannot be so helpful to, to working with religions to bring people to a better place. I hope I will get a chance to find out. And of course, in my writing, again, there that's only half the picture. The other half, and perhaps the one that's more important with, with regard to what we're talking about is, I'm writing to the Buddhists and the Hindus and the people of the Jain tradition who, who are vegan, who do and, and want that support and want to understand. They're maybe frustrated or hurt or feel uh, like outsiders or, or like, I feel so strongly that this is what my, my this is what my tradition teaches and and it's rejected and I I feel so alone and frustrated and it affirms no you are spot on here's the teachings and if you want to talk to your family or talk to your friends about it here's some things that you might say and so going through that channel where I'm helping people to work inside their own traditions is perhaps always a better idea but especially as a white person from a Judeo-Christian type culture, it, that's better. Yeah, you're helping helping those people help their own communities, yeah. Yeah, yeah working with and, them to work and, with their people. And this might be a bit of a tangent, but there's, there's a parallel challenge when people look from the outside of various religious worldviews about some of the intra-human ethical challenges we often see cropping up there, whether it's sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, you know, Islamophobia, worldview bigotry, um, sexism, if I haven't mentioned it. So there are, there are issues that flow up through some of those religions in a practical sense. Do you think a similar approach can apply to intrahuman ethics in religion and in, in working with people to get to return to compassion? Is it the same thing, the same technique? They're not separate. And this is one yeah. of the places that ecofeminism has been absolutely a wonderful gift to my understanding is that it has helped me to have the tools to, to explain and better understand why I don't feel that things are separate, to understand that yeah. we live in a world that is dualistic in our vision, in our language, in our, everything about us is dualistic and it goes back to the Greco-Roman tradition, but that isn't the way the world is. So understanding that uh, is central to, to what you were asking. Yeah. To getting that. Yeah. And, and one of the other things you've worked on is this, the linking or the intersections between different forms of oppression and different forms of challenges within ethics, both within intrahuman ethics and across the species boundary as well. Um, and the sense I get, again, is that there's just commonality and integrity and coherence behind the approach. Yes. You want to take yes. to all of that stuff. It's about rich compassion through yes. dialogue with people based on where they are. 
to uh, some extent you either have compassion or you don't yeah and if you don't you're just plain selfish you know all you care about is yourself and once you start having compassion you know why would you only have it towards your family or your brother or your cousin it just doesn't make any sense it's it's not a limited it's not a some zero game it's you know it's 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 a boundless capacity and while i will say that i know we are limited in our energy and we're limited in what we can work for so i'm delighted to have people working against racism and sexism of course that's all so important what i ask is that animal activists not feed into racism not feed into sexism and similarly that those working toward poverty don't feed animal products to hungry people and those working for the environment don't themselves consume animals and animal products so that's more where i go that's the connection i see they're all connected but i don't expect people to work as animal activists who have these other causes all need all the effort but they need to quit working against each other yeah and there's an ethical imperative behind that uh stance to say you know great you're working on fixing this problem but please don't make these other ones worse at the same time i have directly said that to some of my friends but there's complementarity there as well because as so often in these topics you Mm -hmm. extend more compassion here you see benefits in other are connected there isn't just connection they are they are not separate they are one thing either you have compassion and you care or you don't and if you have compassion and if you care and if you're informed they're all connected you know there's no way to separate out our indifference for other races to our, from our indifference to, uh, to animals or to the poor or to women, you know, whatever it is, or old people or transgender. Yeah, it's all compassion. And it's, in, uh, it's interesting because I think people do find different routes to it. Some people, it is more of an emotional thing. You know, I just, I just I feel it. I care about the people around me and then I extend that um, much more broadly. Some people do find a more intellectual path to it where they, they don't necessarily feel the pull so strongly, but, but it, it, almost in a colder, but still it's a very strong way. They're like, I just see no rational reason not to, you know. You think Descartes was like that? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe if, maybe if the science had taken him a different way, he wouldn't have tortured his wife's dog. I don't know. It's, um, it's just it's mind-blowing, isn't it? I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I don't know. It's difficult to tell how, how you could do things like that. And, and see the response of another sentient being viscerally in front of you and deny its moral salience. Well, this is the fear of being all in your mind. Yeah. This is the fear of using the mind too much, as we've seen in history where that can go. Yeah. And it is not a pretty picture. Yeah. And so I am quite fine. My sister is endlessly involved with the emotive side of life. Yeah. Boy, do we sometimes have difficulty communicating and working together. But she always reminds me that 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 matters, that just caring about another person, not from a philosophical point of view, not from a mind point of view, but from a heart point of view, just getting that something is hurtful or unkind, that matters. Yeah, it does. So how does that leave you feeling overall? So I'm going to work on the humanists and the atheists and the skeptics and work with the religious as well. You're going to fix, you're going to help the religious fix themselves and extend their compassion back to the you know, in my writing of... right now, that's what I'm doing. But I will. Yeah. How do you feel? How do you feel about our prospects? 
Fantastic. I'll engage with anybody that gets near me, and I hope that you will too. But of course, to do that, we have to be educated about the different things if we're going to do it. And so I do understand why maybe some people, you know, you're not going to want to work with anything too far from your own religion. And, you know, we don't even understand our own religions most of the time. So I get that. Well, that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. You, like you said, you were going to, you sort of ripped up my amateur script and we went all over the place but it was much the better for it thank you so Very much fun. and 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 i just love that what you said you know compassion is a boundless capacity i might use that as the title for the episode um and it's an inspiring note to finish on what is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation before i let you get on with your day just thank you and anybody interested in my work it's at uh, vegantapestry.com and there's an also alisakemmer.com you can find all my writings and I try to keep as many writings as I can up and for free. So you can find them either on my website or you can find them on research.com, for example. I think all of my articles are up there and chapters from books as well. I'm trying, I'm working so hard right now on the website that's gonna have each religion. That's my huge project. It'll probably take seven years and I just am working on it every day to try to work on getting the information online on the different religions with regard to animals. So yeah, life's pretty full. And then there's always the, you know, the deer and the, we've got to look after the deer and then there's the snake and the bird and the, somebody along the road. So life's busy, but and, it's And the cool. dogs behind you. The mutts, my wonderful mongrels. <laughs> yes, my family. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for carving out some time from your busy thank day you. to be fun. a guest on Sentientist Conversations. Yeah, I love the conversation. Thank you so Bright much. Right spot in my day. Thank you very much. Glad to hear it. You Thanks. take care. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?